From the studios of WETN on the campus of Wheaton College, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we continue our series of interviews from the Wheaton College Conference on the Bible and Democracy in America, presented by the American Bible Society, when we talk with Wheaton College political science professor Amy Black. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin explores a first-hand account of autism when she discusses The Reason I Jump by Naoki Higashida. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're doing a special series of interviews from the uh, Bible and Democracy in America conference here at Wheaton College. And I'm very pleased today to have as our guest uh, Professor Amy E. Black. She's Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations here at Wheaton College. And she earned her Ph.D. in political science at MIT in uh, and she served as an American Political Science Association Congressional Fellow working in the office of Representative Melissa A. Hart uh, prior to uh, coming to uh, Wheaton College. And so with that, Dr. Black, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So we're kind of doing this as an impromptu uh, favor to my friend Tim Beal. And so uh, I am not as prepared as I normally am. So why don't we start uh, both for me and for our listeners by sort of uh, getting a a sense of of where you uh, are coming into this conversation about the Bible and democracy in America. What is your background? Sure. Well, my background, as you partially mentioned, I'm a political scientist. So I'm very interested in how our government works the political institutions, but I'm also interested in how we as individuals interact with government. The the fancy word for that is political behavior. What makes, how do people um, understand politics? How do they learn about politics? Why do they vote the way they do? How do um, the news media affect our understanding of politics? Those kinds of questions. So I have been teaching American politics for, I've been at the college for 13 years. I've been teaching for about 17 years. Lots of different classes in American politics, but one of my research interests is that of religion and politics, and I think that's probably where I come into the conversation here at the at the at the conference. So, when you talk about the the sort of influence of political behavior, do you look mainly at statistics and demographics, or or what what methodology do you use to to sort of examine those those issues? It depends. How's that for a terrible answer? So one thing we look at a lot are surveys, statistical surveys. So those people who call you during dinner and ask you questions about your political beliefs, they really are kind of important because it helps us understand. So survey methodology is one thing that we use. We can also look at other forms of aggregate data, but I'd say surveys are probably the best way because we can have an individual person know characteristics about him or her that they have told us, connect that with patterns like their voting behavior, their ideology, their interest in politics, their feelings about different politicians, different institutions. And so by taking data like that, getting two or 3,000 people to give us information. There's a lot that we can learn as we work with that survey data. So that's one of the main sources. Now, four or five years ago, the uh, the Pew uh, Forum on Religious Life did a huge landscape survey yes. that looked at sort of the, the bench line demographics and those sort of mixtures that you were saying about politics and religious behavior and the correlations there. Is it is that similar to the kind of work that you do or – 
that's the kind of data that I would use. So organizations like Pew, in fact, the Pew Foundation has probably done more, I would say, to to move forward solid social science research than many other organizations I can think of. Their data collection is superb. These kinds of studies are immense projects that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So people like me will take the data from organizations like Pew and try to work with that data, understand what it means, help explain what we're learning. And of course, I use a lot of their reports and those kinds of things in my own work. So I don't collect the data myself. I did that in graduate school. But now I rely on others to collect the data, and then I use it to help answer questions and sort of unravel puzzles. Now, you said a moment ago a phrase that intrigued me, solid social science data. What would be an example of not solid or wobbly social science data? So, <laughs> Well, there's lots of it. The easiest would probably be anecdotal. Well, I have a friend who or I know someone who. You would be amazed at how many people can build arguments from anecdotes. So I heard of this one thing or I saw this one thing happen. It must be true for everyone else. So that's why things like um, national surveys that take a lot of time to develop the questions that have a careful statistical random sample, not random in the sense of, oh, let's just see who we find, but coming up with a way that every person has the same probability of being chosen. All these kinds of things help take away some of the noise. So I could say, you know, I want to know what people think about the election, so I'm just going to walk around and talk to the first 10 people I see. That would be very poor data collection. So things like what Pew does, the Gallup organization, most of the most of the polls that are reported that are combinations, you'll see the ABC, Wall Street Journal poll, CNN Gallup polls, those kinds of things. Those organizations have people who are trained in survey research methods who in the, overall are going to be doing a really good job asking careful, non-leading questions, collecting the data appropriately, doing the sampling appropriately, all those kinds of things. Now, as I look across the landscape of American political life, and particularly American religious political life, one of the phrases that immediately comes to mind is this notion of the culture wars. Sure. And when we think about the culture wars, uh, particularly if you watch, as I do, a mixture of Fox News and MSNBC, it's a little daunting in my brain sometimes to keep those two things sort of going sure. and not have them. But but what you see is sort of a battle of statistics and a battle of polling. So mm -hmm. you, have, you have disparate polls that um, I think – you know, you just said good good questions, good sample size, all those sorts of things. It seems like both of these organizations, if we take them as two sort of poles of a right-left spectrum, both these organizations are very, very good and have gotten better at finding people who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. Absolutely. I would say there's, they, there's some manipulation of the polling data. I think there's significantly more manipulation of just the so-called experts. So if you watch Fox News, they're going to have their experts on, and they're going to have the expert who represents the right and the ex expert who represents the left. And you're going to watch MSNBC, and they're going to do exactly the same. But we well know that the person who represents the left on Fox News is going to be very different than the person who <laughs> represents the left on, on MSNBC and vice versa. So one of my concerns about some of the programming from both of those networks is that they present the programming as if it's objective. And it's not. It's subjective. I think it's perfectly fine to watch Fox News, but you need to understand that you're hearing a conservative view on the issues of the day. If you turn to MSNBC, 
Again, it's fine to watch that. We're not going to see objective reporting there either. We're going to see a liberal take on the views of the day. What happens is that many people, particularly with so many different news media choices, so many options, and such ideologically polarized options, more and more people are choosing news that reinforces what they already believe. So the conservative turns on Fox News and only Fox News and reads the conservative blogs. The ideological liberal turns on MSNBC, that's his or her source of media, and they read the liberal blogs. It's much better, although it can be a bit confusing, to hear both sides. But we assume that something is presented to us as fair, balanced, objective, when it really is one side of the story. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're having a conversation with Amy E. Black. She's Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College. We're doing this in the context of the Wheaton, uh, the Wheaton co-sponsored event with the American Bible Society on the Bible and democracy in America that's taking place here on the Wheaton campus. Well, a moment ago, you mentioned this echo chamber effect that uh, viewers begin to develop as they they have a, a certain political bias and they begin to seek out uh, sort of sources and resources that reinforce that political bias. And so they have a conservative mindset or they have a liberal mindset, and so they tend to glom towards Fox News or they tend to be drawn towards MSNBC, and they keep hearing messages that reinforce their own sort of political identity. When we have that effect, is it possible to still have uh, what we might call a little d democratic process? How does how does social media, how does how does the echo chamber effect of media itself um, either support or distort this experiment in, in democracy that we have here in America? Well, I think it both supports and distorts, although I am concerned that we see more and more sources of this distortion. So start with the echo chamber. If indeed all of the information that you're learning about politics is is given to you through an ideological lens, whatever that lens might be, it's very hard to understand the arguments on the other side. It's very hard to even fathom that there might be another side. One of the things I've been doing, I'm on sabbatical right now, and I'm in the very early stages of researching a new book, and one of the things I've been reading is literature and moral psychology and some neuroscience about how our brains work. And it's very interesting to find out how much emotion drives our decision-making. We think that we are reasoning. We think that we are rational in our approach to politics, but somewhere it depends on who you talk to. But a lot of the experts are saying 90, 95% of the decisions we make in politics come from intuition and emotional responses. So if we are listening to news media sources that support our pre-existing views, if most of our friends believe the same things that we do, if our lives are an echo chamber, all we're hearing is reinforcing what we already believe, and it's going to be very difficult to think outside of that programmed box because our brains are comfortable and our emotions are comfortable. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're reporting uh, and doing this interview in the context of the Bible and Democracy in America conference that's occurring at Wheaton College. And our 
Guest today is Amy E. Black. She's an associate professor of political science in the Department of Politics and International Relations here at Wheaton College. And we're talking about the experience of uh, the uh, the political life of America, uh, influenced by the rise of the rise of social media, and particularly in the context of of American religious faith. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about big R Republicans and big D Democrats, but now I want to talk about little d Democratic process. Sure. In our little R Republican government. (laughs) In our little R Republican government. Um, If we look at the history of the Catholic Church, it was only very recently that the Catholic Church embraced uh, the notion of democratic structures as being trustworthy. Um, on the on the uh, on the Protestant side, we can look back to people like uh, Francis Schaeffer, and to see the sort of allergy that Schaeffer and and those to the right of Schaeffer had to the notion of actually allowing people to govern themselves because of his very Calvinist notion of total depravity. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, is there a, certainly America remains a very religious country and in many ways a very Christian country? If that's the case, do these desires for God's way or the highway push against the proper execution of these kind of structures of little d-democracy that we depend on for the maintenance of government? Yeah, I think at times they do. One thing that, that I find is a common source of confusion or error, I would say, with my students, and I find this also when I speak at churches and with, with, with Christian groups in general, is that there's a, a real confusion about what the separation of church and state means, which in my mind is at the heart of American democracy. So when we say separation of church and state, that's a very specific term. It's not a term that is anywhere in the Constitution, but it's a concept that clearly comes from the First Amendment of our Constitution. But the idea of the separation of church and state is that we should have a separation between institutions of religion and institutions of government, that they should not have sway over one or the other. So we are not a country that pays the salaries of clergy, as some countries do. I think that's pretty straightforward. But then there's this other side. I'm still working on the best phrase for it, and I don't have a really good one, but I like to call it sort of the integration of faith and politics. People of faith want to bring the principles from their faith and their beliefs, concepts from the Bible, to their understanding of politics. And I think that is absolutely what they should do. I mean, that's part of who I am, what I do, why I teach what I do, why I write what I do. But a lot of people confuse separation of church and state with this idea of that I can bring my faith to bear in my personal politics. And so then they come up with all kinds of different notions about is government good or bad. So what I try to help people understand is that the institutional separation of church and state is actually something that's created with the intention of protecting religion, allowing for freedom of religion, allowing religious institutions to do as they choose and not to be worried about what the state is going to do or have no fear of government. At the same time, we as individual people of faith or no faith at all should be able to make our views about religion and morality part of how we how we vote, um, who we support in election, be it as a volunteer with our vote, with our with a campaign donation. But a lot of times that just seems to get confused. And so people think, well, I can't be a Christian and have separation of church and state. 
That's absolutely not true. You can be a Christian, have separation of church and state, but we just need to realize that acting and thinking out of our religious beliefs is different than this role of institutions. I'm not saying all Christians have to think that separation of church and state is the right system, but that is the system that we have. It's what our founders designed. One thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the American colonies, all all but one had established churches before we became a nation. So they had a history of church and state, and the history was of the integration of church and state. And the founders very distinctly, against the common practice, chose to separate the institutions of state and religion. But then if we if we extend this not just to personal political political behavior, but the enactment of laws – Laws also have a moral basis as well Absolutely. as a rational basis. And and so you, you begin to have these very thorny political conflicts where a lawmaker may think, well, from my moral background, I don't think – let's go back 50 years. I don't think that people should have access to contraception. Um, and the political climate changes and, and technology changes and the ability to have safe and affordable contraception – sort of becomes more available there's a there's a, a sea change in the sort of uh, the sort of uh, the sort of societal view on this but you still have even today you have you have laws and lawmakers that want to try and inject a, a very uh, one particular style of christian morality into lawmaking around the question of contraception now i i don't have i don't have a, a professional opinion on that with regard to this show but in terms of you know my own personal political behavior, when I go into the ballot box, I'm going to vote according to my conscience. But I'm not a lawmaker. But as a lawmaker, my conscience gets to shape the way that that uh, that law looks for an entire geographic region, if not the entire nation. How does the separation of church and state factor into those sorts of moments when you sure. have personal conscience but then the making of law for others that may not be bound by that conscience? Right. Well, one thing that I, I think is helpful is to, is to step back a bit and say, what do we mean by representation? Because, of course, as we said, we're a little D democratic system, but we're also a little R Republican democracy. We are not a true direct democracy because, oh my goodness, can you imagine 310 million of us trying to decide on anything? So we elect people to represent us. And then there's a question behind what does it mean? Um, the two kind of competing theories, there's always you know iterations, but let's go with two basic theories. One would say that the best representative is a delegate for his or her constituents. A delegate is there to represent what the majority of his or her constituents want. The best delegate representative would be the one who has the pulse of the voters, who knows what the concerns are in his or her community, and knows what they want and wants to do what his or her constituents want, regardless of the personal views of the legislator. So that's a straight delegate. We also have this model called the trustee model. This comes more from thinkers like Edmund Burke, and the idea of the trustee model is that we entrust someone to represent us. We expect that they have greater expertise than we do, that they are making decisions with more information, and that we that they will serve as good trustees. They will make the right or the best decisions for us. It's a very different model of representation than do what we say. And so what we find 
I mean, in America, because we're just full of contradictions, we really want both. We want to we want people to be delegates when they aren't doing as we see fit, and we want them to be trustees when we vote in the way that we say, I want the most qualified person for the job. I want the person who's been there a long time, and, of course, I trust my member of Congress. So we kind of want both. But in reality, I think what we find when it comes to religion and politics, some religious voters are saying, I elected you as someone who is openly professing to be of a particular faith, as someone who says she brings her faith to bear. I expect you to bring your faith to bear in your decisions, and I want you to do that. Another voter would say, I don't think your religion should have anything to do with the decisions. When you go to D.C., you should put your religion at the door, and he should be doing what we want, not imposing his religion on us. Those are just two fundamentally different views of representation, and um, and different people view that um, through that different lens. So in my mind, in some ways, it's really not a separation of church and state question. It's more of a nature of representation. To what extent should an individual legislator or executive, be it governor, president, to what extent should that individual elected official's personal views affect his or her decisions? If you think the trustee model is best, then you want them to make wise decisions. Perhaps they make better decisions than you do. If you prefer a little more sort of little d democratic model like the delegate model, then you would say that person really needs to be able to step back from his or her personal religious and cultural context and do what the voters are saying they want. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Wheaton College professor Amy Black. Dr. Black is associate professor of political science. Her most recent book is Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason from Moody Publishers. You can find out more about Amy Black and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Wheaton College professor Amy Black. Dr. Black is associate professor of political science. Her most recent book is Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason from Moody Publishers. You can find out more about Amy Black and her work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. What is one thing that our listeners can take away from this conversation that they can do concretely to help increase civility in our national discourse? I'll give you two. Am I allowed? Yeah, please. (laughs) The first and really the most important is to pray. I don't think we think about enough the power of prayer, but we have a connection to God Almighty, the creator of the universe. I think that's pretty amazing. And we need to be praying for our leaders, those we voted for, those we would never vote for, for their uh, for their protection, for their wisdom and discernment. I I would not want to be an elected official in our system it seems like such a difficult and thankless job. I'm so grateful that there are men and women willing to do this, and we need to be praying for them and praying for the decisions that they make. Second, I think the, the another thing that we can do, not as important but also a good thing to do, is just really think about our own, the way we talk about politics. I have a simple test. It may sound hard because it goes against the grain of what we do, but it is a very easy way we can change the way we approach politics. We should apply the golden rule. When I speak about 
another politician, when I speak about a political issue, I should treat others the way I would want them to treat me. So I should speak about the politician I didn't vote for in the same way I would speak about the politician that I did vote for and gave all this money to. I should give those who disagree with me on a particular issue the same respect, treat them with the same respect, talk about their views in the same way that I would expect them to talk about mine. It doesn't mean they have to therefore agree with me, but there are ways that we can be civil. There are ways that we can be respectful even as we disagree, and as I would like someone to take me seriously, to listen to my views, to not distort them for their own personal gain, I too should take someone's views seriously, listen to them carefully, not distort their views, but try to understand where they're coming from. If we were all able to do just a little more of that golden rule in the way that we personally interact and talk about politics, I think we can make an amazing difference and really be a really effective witness. Well, Professor Amy Black, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a joy to talk to you. It's been great to be with you, David. Professor Amy E. Black is Associate Professor of Political Science in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Wheaton College. As I mentioned, this is part of a series of interviews that I conducted at the Bible and Democracy in America conference held last October at Wheaton College and co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. You can find out more about the conference and the work of the American Bible Society at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website, so if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on anything. You can go back and explore just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin discusses Naoki Higashida's recently translated memoir, The Reason I Jump, the inner account of a 13-year-old boy with autism. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. In this context of discussions about the Bible and democracy, it's appropriate to explore how we go about including the radically other among us. Few types of otherness have so challenged us, both on a social and a personal level, than has the reality of autism. After years of study, we're still deeply disturbed by its presence among us, and we don't know a great deal about how it arises or how it might be successfully addressed. It's a rare and helpful thing, therefore, to be able to catch a glimpse behind the curtain of autism and to receive an insider's account of the experience of this neurological condition. One such account is The Reason I Jump, the inner account of a 13-year-old boy with autism, a memoir by Japanese author Naoki Higashida, recently translated by K.A. Yoshida and David Mitchell. Katie Scroggin offers this review. Most of what a general American audience knows about autism probably comes from the 1988 film Rain Man. While the movie did raise some awareness of the condition, it and other cultural projects have never really offered us a view of autism from the perspective of someone who lives with the disorder. When he was 13 years old, 
Japanese author Naoki Higashida let the world know exactly what it was like to be autistic by writing The Reason I Jump, recently translated into English by British novelist David Mitchell and his wife, K.A. Yoshida. Mitchell and Yoshida were personally affected by this book. In attempting to find resources to address their own son's autism, they found that most sources on the disorder were not only written by people who weren't autistic, but were also more or less useless, maudlin, or condescending. But Higashida's account stood out to them as an incredibly helpful resource, able to provide them with first-hand reasons, not just medical speculation or data about which parts of the brain were lighting up when doing certain tasks, for behavior that they couldn't understand. Written mostly in a question-and-answer format, Higashida proceeds by responding to the questions he most often receives about autism and the behaviors, thoughts, and feelings that go along with it. Included here are analyses of topics such as autistic people's talking at the volume and with the particular inflections that they do, their difficulty in having conversations, their discomfort with being touched, and the assumption that they dislike interacting with others. Although it's a quick read, the book's simplicity of style never attempts to hide or deny the complexity of living with the disorder, or of trying to describe the condition to people whose brains, and hence reflexes and senses, function in an entirely different way than do those who live with it. But Higashida stresses throughout the book that in spite of what amounts to proceeding according to a different operating system, people with autism, often contrary to popular belief, experience the same desires, passions, sorrows, and needs as everyone else. But this full emotional life becomes problematic, since those living with the disorder are often unable, thanks to the way their brains receive and process information, to communicate their thoughts, beliefs, and feelings with others. The result of this situation is the fact that most of us are unable to perceive the emotional turmoil experienced by people with autism when they know how much confusion and trouble they're causing others, and when they become frustrated both at being unable to communicate what's inside and at having others assume they just want to be left alone, especially when, according to Higashida, that's the last thing they desire. What may be one of the author's most heart-wrenching pleas is his frequent request to the reader to be patient and stick with those living with autism, the latter of whom want nothing more than to live a friction-free existence with others. As people with the condition learn how to do this, Higashida says that others' frustrations and negative reactions, reactions that make autistic individuals feel such a goal of normalcy is unachievable, also make life seem not worth living. In describing his quest to figure out both what constitutes an appropriate response to others and how to deliver that response, Higashida often lends concreteness to the Apostle Paul's assertion in Romans 7.15 that, quote, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This assertion takes on an entirely new level of reality, not abstract or metaphorical in the least, when viewed from the perspective of someone living with autism. The book's fundamental call to empathy is noticeable in the author's own keen sense of the effects he has on others. Higashida reveals that another striking aspect of living with his condition is a desire to please others, to see everyone treat each other with respect and concern, and to stop fighting amongst themselves. This desire for harmony and human interactions even extends to shying away from friendly competition. As the author notes about his love of running, but his inability to take part in races. Although he finds joy in running just to run, his failure to, quote, 
get any pleasure out of beating other people, causes him to freeze up at the thought of a starting line. Most notable, though, in this regard, is Higashida's short story featured at the end of the book, in which the soul of a dead boy comforts his mother by being reborn as her second child, an arrangement that entails his giving up both a life in heaven, as well as his memories even of having existed. If there's any danger in the book, it's that readers will sentimentalize it as a feel-good account of overcoming overwhelming odds and leave it at that. And although tremendous effort, willpower, and talent did go into this project, if we go no further than that, we will have missed much of what Higashida wants us to take from his book, an expanded understanding of the many ways there are of being human, an understanding that should enable and encourage us to do the patient, demanding work of welcoming more than the familiar into our circle of care and love. Hard as that accepting embrace may sometimes be to put into practice and to maintain, Higashida has provided us with evidence, and here's where it would be unfair to toss out entirely that sugary amazement I just dismissed, that we're all probably capable of far more than any of us might guess. Katie Scroggin is a translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed The Reason I Jump, the inner account of a 13-year-old boy with autism, by Naoki Higashida. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WETN on the campus of Wheaton College. WETN is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt engineered the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenoch, and David Merrill. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.